Welcome to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Doug McBurney, host of the Weekly Worldview, amateur comedian, philosopher. Fred, I want to thank Ryan Williams for sitting in last week while I was on assignments, very important assignments. <laughs> uh, but what a great show. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, it was a ton of fun. And we're going to actually mention listener to that show send in an email i want to talk about that briefly we've got a great show planned for today regarding a new resource that has become available to us doug and it's going to make it really hard for anyone to continue to believe plate tectonics is a real thing really looking forward to getting into that so regarding this listener so ryan and i talked about the latest james webb space telescope findings it, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it included an article from Sky and Telescope that the headline was, the James Webb Space Telescope is finding too many early galaxies. So this listener pointed out there's a part in the article that, quote, the galaxies appear to date between 200 million and 400 million years after the Big Bang. The listener rightly points out that this is just simply way too much. It's way too early in the evolutionist timeline. So this really, Doug, it becomes more fodder for our evolution's big squeeze list. I actually found an article from early 2009 from Scientific American, and it claimed the first galaxies formed one billion years ago. So in 14 years, the timeline has squeezed from one billion to 200 million years. <laughs> well, Fred, come on. It's like between aging friends when you talk about how you're getting older. You know, what's 800 million years between friends? Come on. <laughs> Yeah, if you look at it, every year since 2009, the timeline has shrunk 57 million years per each year until now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking at that rate, Doug, in another five years, the data will say that the Big Bang instantly produced the galaxies. You know, and that, <laughs> <laughs> that would sound an awful a lot like uh, in the beginning to me. Um, right, of course, right. not billions of years ago. But yeah, That's things right. are getting it, really it, tight it, for it, the it, poor evolutionists. Yeah, it, it starts to resemble plasma astronomy although plasma astronomy gives it at least i think three or four days <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah and we had that great show with joe spears back last year one of my favorite shows of the year on plasma cosmology you can go to rsr.org slash plasma and uh, listen to those shows so doug there's also a couple of news items that we wanted to get through there's always a lot of them and we kind of have to pick which ones we like the best so this is one from a few weeks ago, and this is reported in Science Daily, and it's the title is Riddle Solved. Why was Roman concrete so durable? I thought, Yeah, wow. what's up with that? I thought that was really cool. So, you know, they start off by saying that the ancient Romans were masters of engineering, constructing vast networks of roads, aqueducts, ports, and massive buildings whose remains have survived for two millennia. I don't know, Doug, if you had a chance to go to Rome, but we've been able to see some of these things, and they're just amazing. Anyways, many of yeah. these structures, they were built with concrete. So Rome's famed Pantheon, for example, which has the world's largest unreinforced concrete dome, 
and it was dedicated in 128 AD. It's still intact, and some ancient Roman aqueducts, they actually still deliver water to Rome today. Wow. The uh, article, <laughs> yeah, it points out that many concrete structures that we have today that we've built, they've already crumbled after just a few decades. So, Right. Maybe that's why, that's, is that why we have to reinforce? You know, a lot of people might not know what reinforced concrete is because not too many people are in construction. But reinforced concrete is where we take steel bars, rebar, and we push it through the concrete to strengthen the concrete. And the Romans didn't need that, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they mentioned in the article that the way that they thought the Romans did it, they thought it was sloppy mixing practices. And they thought they were using poor quality raw materials. You know, that's what happens happens when you have an evolutionary worldview where you think that man is actually becoming more advanced and his brain is becoming smarter over time. And we've actually seen yeah. the opposite. The genius of ancient man often outdoes what we have now. We've had more time to build up knowledge and whatnot, but their ingenuity was greater than ours. And here's yet another example. Yeah. So... What this study found was there's these tiny lime clasts. Say that 500 times, Doug. Say that 500 million times. <laughs> lime clasts. <laughs> C-L-A-S-T-S. So it gave the concrete a previously unrecognized self-healing capability. So, Whoa. wow. Yeah, self-healing. So their concrete is actually self-healing. That's really cool. Yeah, and so Fred... The idea that you could have an unreinforced concrete dome in modern times, that's just, that defies engineering. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So they combine things like, they can tell from the evidence that they did something called hot mixing. And so they'd have to bring this stuff to really high temperatures to allow the chemistry to do its work, to get it to the self-healing structure. It's so cool and they've kind of they believe they're getting close to actually cracking the code, and they can use this technology that the Romans used to make you know much better concrete today. So again, wow. you, know, you look at what ancient man does, you look at what God does in His design. We learn from this stuff, and we can use this technology to help us move forward. And you know, we're going to actually use technology that the Romans were already using over two thousand years ago. So pretty cool. Yes, yes. So overcoming the evolutionary worldview that ancient man was somehow less intelligent than we are, that it'll benefit our civilization going forward. Well, what's left of it? What hasn't crumbled? Yeah, and so if you want to read about this, we'll provide a link in the show summary to this article about Roman concrete if you want to get all the details. But yeah, again, just another great example of God's ingenuity. When he created man, man had, he gave man quite a bit of smarts, you know, I, yeah. I came across an article when I was looking at, you know, different news items, and there was this one about this myth, this kind of fake news that man only uses 10% of his brain, and that's just oh, so yeah, not true. Yeah, and, you know, man uses, if you remove any piece or chunk of a brain, there's always some kind of functional loss, and, you know, Bob and I did a show a couple of years ago on savants, and Bob made a great point that, you know, the fall probably resulted in us losing some ability to tap into even more of the power of the brain. And, you know, I'd encourage people to go listen to that show. It was fantastic. RSR.org slash savants. Yeah, that and was amazing just imagine, stuff. yeah, if we had the vast amount of information that we'd be able to tap into 
in our brains if it wasn't for the fall that kind of probably blocked there's probably a block that occurred so that you know if man was so incredibly intelligent just think how much more wicked he'd be since the fall i mean just consider the way is man is now oh yeah so that's why yeah that's why there had to be a block put on wow yep well i know a number of people who i've suspected that they're only using 10% 10% of their brain. <laughs> and speaking of all of that, and speaking of modern man being somewhat less advanced than ancient man, when you think about the fact that plate tectonics sits right up there with Darwinian and Neo-Darwinian evolution, they sit up there atop the world of modern science almost like the secular version of Moses at the top of Mount Sinai are these two worldviews, plate tectonics and evolution. And the fact that they dominate the secular scientific world is an indication to me that we're not as smart as we think. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I think you're kind of maybe referring to only using 10% of your brain if you believe in that (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Sorry to our geologist friends out there and those who still believe in plate tectonics. We we love you and respect you, and but we've got a great resource that we think you should get, and that's a new book, and it's called 20 Reasons to Question Plate Tectonics. It's by uh, Ellis Hughes, and man, this book is fantastic. It's got all kinds of references, you know, to actually to secular sources, and it just does a really good job of explaining the mega serious problems for, for plate tectonics. Oh, yeah, and Professor Hughes cites secular as well as creationist sources, and Professor Hughes says the intent of the book is for anyone, Christian or secular. I mean, we hope they would become a Christian because it would be a real shame for you to read this book, 20 Reasons to Question Plate Tectonics, and then end up in the lake of fire for all eternity and not be able to do anything with all the knowledge in the book. So we hope, but the intent was for anyone, Christian or secular, to see the serious problems with plate tectonics. And it's a great addition for anyone's homeschool curriculum it's good for teenagers for college-age students and uh and for adults as well it's a phenomenal resource fred i'm excited to go through some of the highlights with you yeah and you know just provide yourself with more information so that you can make an informed decision why would you want to only hear one side of the story so maybe you went to college and you learned about plate tectonics i have friends who are christians and they got their degrees in fields like geology or related to geology, and they believe in plate tectonics. But I just encourage them, be informed on all the issues so that then you can make a better decision. Hey, was I maybe, uh, was there something wrong with this theory? I mean, we've all had believed in something that was wrong. I believed in, you know, dinosaurs were God's pets for millions of years. I believed that for 30 years of my life, you know? So just get this book so you can make an informed decision, and we're going to go through it. But before we do that, Doug, I did want to get to one last news item. So, and this news okay. item is from a few weeks ago, and it's from this moon on this one of Saturn's moon. Can you tell us a little bit about oh, this that's story? Right. That's right. Yes, this is from sciencenews.org, and it's regarding Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn, and it's about all the snow on Enceladus. There's a lot of snow on this moon of Saturn, 
and it also has geysers. So we've got snow, and we've got a geyser jetting out. The geyser's made up of water vapor, and there's one of the reviewers in the article says that there may be a saltwater ocean deep down beneath the snow in Enceladus, and they're wondering where did all this water come from on this moon that circles hmm. Saturn. And I'm reading the article and I'm thinking, water, hmm, I wonder where a lot of water would come from <laughs> out there in space. And I thought about the Earth. Yeah, because normally, like, when I first saw this, I'm like, okay, well, why do we care? And then it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you read this article and it sounds a lot like this might fit the hydroplate theory. Right. right. It's quite possible that the this moon that circles Saturn, this came from the earth from the fountains of the great deep and that's why there's so much water involved and it's snowy and it fits a lot of the descriptions that walt brown predicts for many of the objects that are flying around and floating around and orbiting around in our solar system and speaking of that doug that's a really good segue into the fact that next week one week from today dr rob brown from the air force academy walt brown's son rob brown's going to be speaking to our creation group rocky mountain creation fellowship you can go to youngearth.org to find out the details he'll be at littleton baptist church at 7 p.m next friday I, i'm so looking forward to that talk if he doesn't mention this you know he's going to talk about transneptunian objects and they all fit with walt brown's hydroplate theory and that all this material came from the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep that is going to i've been looking forward to his presentation for a long time and so yeah everybody please be sure to Check that out. And just FYI, Doug, I'll be in Fort Morgan the night before, Thursday night. So this coming Thursday, I'm going to give a presentation on the hydroplate theory to a group in Fort Morgan at Berean Bible Church. And you can go to youngearth.org, and the link to their website is on our front page. It's the Northeast Creation Group. Uh, let me make sure I got that right. Northeast Colorado Creation Group. And that meeting will start at 7 p.m. So anyways... Looking oh, forward to that. Cool. We'll be sure to mention it next week, too, that Rob Brown is going to be speaking at our creation group. He's a pilot. He's got his PhD from University of Colorado. This guy's really bright. He's got peer-reviewed articles. I think if I remember, there are six of them he mentioned to me when he was sending me notes for the website to wow. advertise his presentation that are in peer-reviewed journals that actually support the hydroplate theory that have to do with transneptunian objects. So looking oh, forward to cool. that. That's at Littleton Baptist on February 10th. Fred will be at Berean Bible Church February 9th in Fort Morgan. Berean Bible Church, that's one of the best church names ever. I wish I could have got that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that my mom and dad were members of the Berean Bible Society. We used to get their monthly newsletter growing up when I was. And I believe the Berean Bible Society is uh, still it's an active grace-oriented ministry that that's still active out of the okay. midwest a lot of a lot of great memories and you know the thing is is many of these organizations they're still existent and still extant it's just that they're slowly but surely being drowned out by the woke hysteria and eventually they'll all be illegal if something doesn't change <laughs> yeah that's for certain so that's one of the reasons we're here yep. at Real Science Radio is to stand up against the madness 
with the truth of the simple gospel and the simple science of creationism, which isn't so simple. It's fairly complex, but it's not full of as many rescue devices exactly. as so much of. Well, in fact, that, that's a great segue to get into plate tectonics. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it, you know, obviously God's ingenuity and engineering is is complex, but it's also straightforward. And, you know, so are the reasons why we should question plate tectonics. There's some really straightforward and well thought out and well presented arguments against plate tectonics. And so we could start, Doug. I'm, I got the book right now. I got it in my hand. Very well done. Yes, I, I have it here in front of me. And, I, and also I have a Bible. And so my our Bible study group, Fred, we're going through Genesis. And one of the things I noticed early on as you read through, especially the first chapter of Genesis, it's simple enough that a six-year-old can understand the story, but it's so deep that theologians and scientists can spend a lifetime examining the details of it. It's amazing. Yeah, so true. So I thought, Doug, maybe we'd go through the summary of plate tectonics. So Professor Hughes on page six, he he gives a summary of plate tectonics as it's held today. I wonder if we should quickly go through this so that people that know what good. plate tectonics is in case you're listening and go, what's a plate tectonic? Yeah. So item one, Earth's lithosphere, is, and that's the Earth's crust, is composed of seven or eight major plates and many minor plates. And where these plates meet, their relative motion determines the type of boundary. It could be a convergent boundary a divergent boundary where things are spreading apart, or a transform boundary. Divergent boundaries are where plates are moving apart and new seafloor is being created. Convergent boundaries are places where one plate is diving under or going under another. Transform boundaries are places where plates are moving back and forth laterally. That's the well, first now, item. Now, hold on, Fred. Just to, just to correct here, Convergent boundaries are places where one plate is diving under or going over another. I think you Correct. said under, but it might not matter. And we'll get to some of that later. Yeah, why exactly. It, it might not matter if you were if you were right or wrong about whether it's going over or under because there's a lot of wiggle room when it comes to what's happening with these plates. Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it's funny that you read it that way, Fred. <laughs> So then item two, it says plate tectonic processes began 3.2 to 3.5 billion years ago. 3.2 so. to 3.5. In case you're counting, that, that would be billion years with a billion. Now, now also plate boundaries, uh, according to plate tectonic theory, plate boundaries are associated with earthquakes, volcanic activity, ocean trenches, mountain building, and... The speed that the plates move is somewhere between zero and 10 centimeters per year. So it's a very slow process. Obviously, billions of years are involved. It's very, very slow. Yep. Uh, let's see. And they're able to move, Fred. They're able to move because lithospheric rock has greater mechanical strength than the underlying asthenophere. So we've got the lithosphere and the asthenosphere. So practice, we'll have to practice saying yeah. that early on here in the show. Yeah, if you had a lisp, you could probably say lithosphere very easily. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next item is along convergent boundaries, one plate dives under another through a process called subduction. 
So I'm looking forward to looking at the physics behind this subduction. Oh, yeah. Then item seven, the seafloor that is lost in the process of subduction is offset by the creation of new seafloor. So all of this is happening. You get new seafloor all the time. So it's little centimeters by centimeters, but that's what the belief is. Right. Then there are fracture zones along the mid-ocean ridges, right? And these are places where uneven spreading pressure has been released and the, the fracture zones have to point in the direction of the, the seafloor spreading. Yep. And the driving force that moves these plates, these tectonic plates, is convection of the mantle. And there's a supposedly a various convection cells. And the rising portion of a cell is thought to be where a plume of hot material from the outer core is rising through the mantle. And we're going to take a look at that, too. Okay. And then we have the Benioff zones, right? The Benioff zones, which are angular planal earthquake zones. And these are at convergent zones, and they're believed to show places where one plate is diving under another plate. Yeah, so you'll learn about Benioff zones in you know, Geophysics 101, Geology 101. So, and then finally, the last one is as plates move, sometimes they go over hot spots in the mantle. This results in a chain of volcanoes, for example, like Hawaii. Now, we spent a couple of shows refuting the Hawaiian Islands as a hot spot. You can go to rsr.org slash hotspot if you want to listen to that show and, and just read about all the data that we provided on that page of why hotspots, they're just not a good argument. They've really been widely discredited, but people still use them. They still refer to Hawaiian Islands as hotspots. Okay, so that, that gets us through the summary and that kind of reminds me of evolutionary theory, Fred. Not to conflate the two too much, but they are conflated in that there are there's so many things with Darwinian evolution that have been soundly refuted that are still in use in, in public schools today. I mean, when I was in the government schools in 6th, 7th, 8th grade, they were still teaching us that I forget how it's uh, ontogeny recapitulates misogyny or something like that with the, <laughs> yeah. with the fetus looking like a fish looking like a frog. Yeah. It was actually ontogeny re recapitulates phylogeny, but I like that version better. That pro your version probably fits better to reality. <laughs> so uh, if I'm not mistaken, by the time I was learning that it had already been refuted. And so similarly with plate tectonics, some of the physics and the geology uh, even though they've even though they've been refuted, they're they're still popular. Yeah, I, I actually in, in sent fact, an, I sent an email to a Harvard professor. He had an argument that autogeny recapitulates phylogeny, and even showed the fake embryo drawings from Ernst Haeckel. And I'm like, why do you still it, have yes. these? And, and he's like, oh well, they give a general idea. It's like, no, you're misleading your <laughs> students. And he actually ended up changing his diagram. And I, cause you, I'm like, dude, don't you realize these are actually fraudulent? They've totally been disproven. So anyways, it shows you even at Harvard, they were teaching this knucklehead stuff. Wow. Well, good for you, Fred. Good for you. Right out of the gate, at the time that plate tectonics summited, so to speak, Mount Sinai and became right up there with evolution, I mean, there were, there were a lot of doubters. Not everyone was convinced of this plate tectonic theory, this, this hypothesis even in the secular scientific world, there were plenty of doubters right from the very beginning. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of food fighting going on. 
because there was just a lot of bad data to support plate tectonics back then. And a lot of people realize that there's one famous dude, Arthur Mayerhoff, and he actually wrote a paper on plate tectonics back then. And he accused them of promoting a Procrustean bed. And so what does that mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. In Greek mythology, Procrustus was a sly and wicked innkeeper <laughs> who would lure travelers in for the night and make them sleep in an iron bed. If they were too short for the bed, he would stretch them to make them fit. If they were too long, he would lop off body parts until they fit. So if I was that guy, they would have lopped off my legs. So yeah. the mayor Hoffs apparently saw data being either stretched or ignored. That was the point that he was making. So, you know, there was opposition to this from the beginning and then something happened and just like, you know, like happens in secular science, you get to a point where some bullying goes on and then they force a paradigm down people's throats and then you can no longer get funding unless you support what the talking points are, the talking points as they become for the scientific community. So, yeah, and that's yeah, what's happened with plate tectonics. That's how it started. Professor Ellis really documents well in this book that I have in my hands, all of this information. And you know, Doug, as we go through this book, there's going to be obviously 95% of it we leave out. We're giving the audience the highlights of this book in this uh, show. And it's probably the next one because I think we're getting low on time. But so much great stuff in this book. Yes, yes. And that's a good reminder, Fred, to tell people where they can get a copy of 20 Reasons to Question Plate Tectonics. You can get it right here at Real Science Radio. So go to the website, go to the store, get 20 Reasons to Question Plate Tectonics. I think they're $99 a copy. Is that right? $99? <laughs> Probably that not. I think maybe, what is the cost? I'm looking at the producer. And he does not know. Audience, our producer does not know. <laughs> See, that's because we don't really count the money around here. We don't. We just we hope don't. we have enough to get by. <laughs> we're not doing this for the money, and we're not going to mark up 20 reasons to question plate tectonics to its actual value of $99. We're probably going to sell it somewhere in the $15 range, $15 to $20. Yeah, but it'll be on is, the uh, website, so just go there and, you know. The producer right now is scrambling. He's typing at the keyboard. He's making his website changes. <laughs> well, just just know that whatever we're selling this book for is a bargain because the amount of research and information, the amount of research involved and the amount of information presented is truly phenomenal. In fact, just getting that little brief history on how plate tectonics became the paradigm that it is to me, that was worth the price of admission right there because it, it gives you an insight into exactly how the scientific world works. And you realize that these scientists are not necessarily as pure as the driven snow and motivated only by finding the truth and following the data. Got to go there, find the data. No, that's it's there's a lot of politics and. Yep. And envy and money and eh, science isn't that much different than any other human field. Yeah. And as you touched on earlier, too, this book is not just written for like Christians. It's written for secular people. It's written for the layperson. It's written for the scientist. So anybody can use this as a resource. And the, the author actually has an email address. If you want to contact Professor Hughes, you ah, can that's go right. you can go and we'll provide this link it's question plate tectonics at outlook.com we'll provide a link for that but yeah get the book first and go through it and again this book is written for anybody to read 
So, Doug, the next. Yes, yes. So, before before you listen to the rest of the show, you should write that email down, questionplatetectonics at outlook.com, and then you can start writing your questions down as you listen. Okay, so we're going to start with reason number one to question plate tectonics. There are too many miles of divergent boundaries. So Professor right. Hughes starts with this one. Right, right. Where is all that old seafloor going? Remember, seafloor is constantly being created. Now it's slow, but still, you have the issue of where is all the old seafloor going? Exactly. And we've got 148,000 kilometers of divergent boundaries, but only about 55,000 kilometers of convergent boundaries. So there's a there's a there's a whole lot of uh, there's a whole lot of something missing, Fred. Yeah, and so in that same section, there's images that show you all the plates, which is really well done. And one of the images I find really interesting. It's on page 11, and they just, you can see here, they just made stuff up because they didn't want like North and South America to be the same plate, so they have to break those plates up. So the author shows an image where they just drew a line near Puerto Rico to break up North and South America, and you look oh, yeah. at where it's done, it's like, well, how can you make that conclusion? You can look at this map of, you know, the ocean in that area and the surfaces in that area, and you don't see any evidence at all for two different plates. So they just figured, okay, right. we just got to, you know, they make st stuff up as they go. Right. Just because they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't like the idea of North and South America being on the same plate. And because that plate would have covered like half the globe, you know, and that would create other major issues for their, their theory, you know, that might've been fatal to the theory so they just assumed that this boundary had to be there somewhere somewhere there off of puerto rico and they just drew a line there and said well that's where it is and and when you look on google earth you're like wait a second exactly okay. <laughs> you mentioned page 11 on page 10 there's just another great graphic of where all these plates supposedly are which direction they're supposedly pushing and moving it's just really well done yeah yep so the next reason, reason number two is there is no adequate explanation for how subduction starts. Now, Fred, to me, this is the biggest issue with plate tectonics. This is the Achilles heel. This is the mic drop event for plate tectonics is the whole idea of subduction. And in order to address it, I think we're probably going to have to do another show. Well, I think we're out of time, by golly. So we're going to have to do another show, and we've got this one and 19, I guess that would be, let's see, am, am I good at math? 20 minus 1 is 19. We've done this. Yes. We've kind of started this one, and like you said, it's really a biggie. So we're going to have to save it for the next show, and, and we'll just have to rapid fire through the next 19. But again, we're going to encourage yes. you to get the book, but, and, but we'll give you highlights of these 19 arguments to get through the 20 reasons to question plate tectonics. So That's Doug, right. somehow we got off, we get off on tangents and we got through one. So maybe it'll take well, 19 more shows to get this finished. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe we can do like, maybe we can do like the secular scientist and um, we can either add or just subtract stuff at, at will. If we, if we were running out of time, we can just subtract. If we need more, we can just make stuff up. Yeah. Well, no, we won't do that. 
We won't. We, yeah, that. we won't no. be procrustus here. We're not going to stretch no. and ignore stuff. Yeah. No, no, no. Twenty reasons to question plate tectonics available at yeah rsr.org/store. That's right. rsr.org/store. Get twenty reasons to question plate tectonics and tune in with us next week to find out about subduction, the Achilles heel of plate tectonics theory yeah and after that 18 more reasons and we'll go through those rapid fire but we'll give you the highlights of them so for doug mcburney this is fred williams of real science radio may god bless you it